Absolutely fantastic. I have a couple of announcements I need to draw to your attention this morning uh, before we open up the scriptures. First, you have seen this sign around the campus. It relates to this need. Over the summer, lots of people disappear from our church for a week or two. So we need people who will stand in the gap and sub for our children one week out of the summer. We need about 50 to 75 one-time subs to make it through the summer. So this is kind of an all-hands-on-deck kind of appeal. Uh, you've seen these signs all around. There's one on the back of your worship guide. I'm not sure. It says you can sign up in the lobby or you can scan here. I don't know how the scan works. I think if you actually scan it, it teleports you into a children's classroom at that moment. <laughs> so be careful with that. I'm not sure we've actually tested that. Um, but uh, obviously, with that level of need, the commitment is very small. But you cannot assume that somebody else is going to do it for you. Okay? Step up and serve one Sunday this summer. Um, information in the lobby. I hope that you'll take care of that. The other thing that I want to uh, make you aware of is a gaffe on my part that I missed. Um, this is Josh and Gina Grizzle. Many of you have gotten to know them over the years. Last Sunday was their last Sunday with us. And uh, Josh has been called to be the pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Cleveland, North Carolina. And so we intended to pray for them last week, and he slipped away without me making uh, time for that in the service. So I told him that the prayer would still count, and we would pray for him today. So uh, we want to pray for Josh and Gina and their kids as they begin new ministry um, in the western part of our state. So would you bow with me in prayer? Let's pray. Lord, we are richly blessed uh, as a congregation with uh, gifted leaders and teachers like Josh. And we pray your favor on his life. That he would be a great blessing and a great shepherd for the people at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Cleveland. Uh, and give him wisdom beyond his years. Give him patience. Give him great faith and love for those people. Protect him and his family. Use him greatly, God, we ask. Lord, we, we too are in need. I pray that by the end of the day, Father, you might meet all our children's needs so that Stephanie can focus on more important matters um, than filling gaps. So, Lord, prompt us uh, to serve well and gladly uh, this summer in this matter. And lastly, Lord, we sit under your word now um, help us not to resist it, but to welcome it gladly as life itself for us, that we might do it and be blessed by it and to honor you in the midst of it. So, Spirit, come and work in every heart in this room. May no one escape your blessing, your conviction. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In the United States, um, mountain lions are the animal regarded as the number one human predator. Um, author and naturalist Craig Childs was on foot doing research on those lions in Arizona's Blue Range Wilderness 
and he approached a water hole from downwind. He spots a mountain lion drinking water. The lion does not notice his presence. But when it finishes drinking, it walks slowly away into a cluster of junipers. And after a few minutes, Childs walks to the water hole to identify tracks in the mud and record notes. Just before he bends down to look closer, he scans the perimeter, and there amongst the shadows of the junipers, 30 feet away, he sees a pair of eyes. He expects the lion to run away, but it walks into the sunlight towards him. Childs pulls his knife and stares into the eyes of the lion. He knows what he must do. More importantly, he knows what he must not do. He writes, mountain lions are known to take down animals six, seven, and eight times their size. Their method? Attack from behind. Clamp onto the spine at the base of the prey's skull, snap the spine. The top few vertebrae are the target, housing respiratory and motor skills that cease instantly when the cord is cut. Mountain lions have stalked people for miles. One woman survived an attack and escaped on foot on a road. The lion shortcut the road several miles farther and killed her from behind. I had, I hold firm to my ground, he says, and do not even intimate that I will back off. If I run, it is certain I will have a mountain lion all over me. If I give it my back, I will only briefly feel its weight on me against the ground. The canine teeth will open my vertebrae without breaking a single bone. So the mountain lion begins to move to my left, he says, and I turn, keeping my face on it my knife at my right side. It paces to my right, trying to get around to my other side to get behind me. I turn right, staring at it. My stare is about the only defense that I have. Childs maintains that defense as the mountain lion now continues to try to provoke him to run, turning left, then right, back and forth again and again, now just 10 feet away. And finally, the standoff ends. The lion turns and walks away, defeated by a man who knew what never to do in its presence. Today, my job is to help you know what never to do in a lion's presence. That's my job, to protect you from the lion. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I believe in the lion. I have seen its tracks. I have seen its wounds. I have seen its scars. I have seen them in you. It is one of my great sorrows. Today, 
I want to help protect you from lions. And in order to do that, we're going to turn, continue our study in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 18. And if you're visiting with us, it's not dude you for Romney. That's a whole different thing. It's a book in the Old Testament, the very beginning of the Old Testament, the front end of it, called Deuteronomy. And it's a series of three messages that Moses gave to God's people when they're right on the edge of entering the promised land. We are in the middle of the second message, and it's a lot of legal and civil laws that are to guide their behavior when they enter the land. And so we're going to start in one of those sections in verse 1 of chapter 18. The Levitical priests, Moses tells them, all the tribe of Levi shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. And this shall be the priests due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. The first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. So these priests, right, these Levitical priests from the tribe of Levi, one of the tribes of Israel, were in charge of two main things, the sanctuary service, the worship service, and the teaching of the law. It's the main things that these priests did. And Moses here is giving directions about how to care for them. Since they're going to have no inheritance in the land. All the other tribes get a, get a parcel of land. The, Levi, the tribe of Levi does not. Okay? They don't get that parcel of land. Instead, they were to depend upon God through the obedience of his people for their needs. While the people depended upon them, the priests, to represent them before God and to teach them about God. So there's, in this relationship, there's a kind of a beautiful codependency going on. Okay? The people need the priests, and the priests need the people. This is both for their provision, one for another, and their protection. What I want to make sure that you, you don't miss here, there, is that the priest's responsibility, one of them, was to teach the people the ways of God. That's what priests did. It's vital to their life in the land, and that's why they were protected and provided for here. Now, in the New Testament, pastors are not the priests. Pastors are never referred to as priests in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we are the priests. Okay? Listen to Peter again. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He's writing to the church. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So the application for this passage um, is not that pastors are priests and you should give us 
the stomach of your sheep. Okay? That's not the idea. You can keep your stomachs. Thank you very much, your sheep stomach. Um, but there is application here by virtue of the way God's people are charged to care for God's leaders. Okay? There's a parallel in the New Testament um, in a variety of places. Book of Galatians, which we studied last year or a couple years ago. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Providing for the teachers. First Timothy, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Again, caring for the, for the teachers. First uh, Corinthians 9, Paul says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their fruit, food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. He's going to use that in his argument as saying that's the way that it's typically done. Um, we are to have the same kind of codependent relationship that the Old Testament priests and people did in that regard. Um, I serve you with the word of God and you serve me by providing for my needs as an act of worship to God. And that's interesting, some of the language that he uses. He says, take the first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep, and you shall give those to the priests. Now, the first fruits, you remember as we've talked about that before as we go through Deuteronomy, it's always given to God as an act of worship. But here it's given to the priests. They are one and the same. They were given to the priests as an act of worship to God. Um, and the same, the same kind of arrangement um, exists for God's people in this day. It comes um, into the coffers of the church, so to speak. It blesses our pastors and our staff. But it is for you an act of worship to your great God. And this arrangement in their day was an obvious blessing for the priests as it is for our leaders today as they received their inheritance through the people's obedience and this provision for the for the priests is for the spiritual good of the people it would preserve their priests who were bringing protection to them as we'll see by the teaching of the word God is protecting his people here by providing them a means to receive his word and have it taught to them through these priests now the next few verses show what it is that God is protecting his people from through these priests that are teaching the law starting in verse 9 well, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you right, they're about to enter the land right you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess. Listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. 
But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. God is warning his people, even commanding them not to embrace the abominable practices of the nations. The idea of an abomination is, is something morally and ethically despicable. It's loathsome. God hates these things. In fact, uh, those ideas are interchangeable. In the book of Proverbs, it says that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Those ideas are almost interchangeable. And in this list of things that God hates that are abominations to him in Deuteronomy 18, um, we can't always precisely render those in our language, but they all seem to revolve around the idea of divining the future or manipulating the future or discerning the meaning of life and the path that we should walk. Peter Craigie, Craigie, in his commentary, divides them into three groups. He says they involve divination of the future, magical manipulation of people or events, and consulting with the spirit world, especially the dead, called necromancy. Now, how many of you knew the meaning of necromancy before you came in this morning? I'm just curious. Okay. Not very many of you. you. See, you learned something today. It's been a good day in church. You learned something. Um, now, I knew this meaning. Um, the reason I knew the meaning of necromancy before I came today is because I looked it up. Okay? The reason that I looked it up is because um, when I was in college, uh, we lived in an apartment. Four, four guys lived in an apartment together. And we were all committed followers of Christ. And it's our senior year, and uh, I was an architect and three engineers, and we were studying like crazy. And one of my roommates meets this homeless guy and invites him to stay in our apartment. So this guy, I don't remember his name, we'll call him Jim. Jim's staying in our apartment, and Jim was homeless for a reason. He was not normal, okay? He was, this is a peculiar dude. And he was hanging around our apartment, sleeping on the couch. This is just for a week or so until we could figure out what to do with the guy. And um, I, I'm at a kid. I still remember this. I'm sitting at the kitchen table studying for one of these, you know, killer engineering exams. Just cramming my brain full of stuff. Jim is a believer. Okay. He's, he's a little, little weird, but he's a believer. And Jim, Jim comes over to me and he says, I have a word of the Lord for you. <laughs> okay, I'm like, dude, could you just hold that until I finish my exam? He says, no, no, that's a word from the Lord. He said, you are a necromancer. Which means I commune with the dead. Okay. So you can imagine how well I did on my engineering final with Jim accusing me of being a necromancer in the middle of... I am not... Jim, as we will see, is what's known as a false prophet, and we'll, we'll deal with him in, in about, about six or eight verses. We'll get to him. Um, see, God is warning his people. He is protecting them 
from seeking truth from dark sources that promise secret hidden revelations about the future or about the way life should go. Really, really any source other than God himself. Now, all of these things seem to cluster around that idea except for that one uh, initial um, description which is where it says that you shall not offer there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. And yet some commentators even feel like that was a tragic and desperate attempt by people to get these so-called gods to speak to them and reveal to them. Practices such as cutting and injuring oneself and even burning your children could have been a desperate appeal for that. There's, a, there's an instance of this in the Bible by the king of Moab in 2 Kings 3. There's a battle that's going against him. He took 700 swordsmen to break through in this battle uh, in 2 Kings 3, opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. So then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. This is the kind of thing that people did when they were desperate. And they were seeking the intervention of these um, dark gods and things like that. But I do want you to think about something for a minute. The consulting of mediums and sorcerers and witches and things like that. They are classed right alongside burning your children in the fire in the eyes of God. This is abominable stuff. God hates this stuff. This is why the Canaanites were driven out of the promised land. Because they did this kind of stuff. These are their practices. And the people of God are expressly forbidden to join in such consultations throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah. When they say to you, Isaiah's warning, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Isaiah says, if God is real, then this stuff is just wrong. And the New Testament reflects these same teachings. Um, in Acts 19, new believers come confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all. It was, it was their their Sacred texts were burned when they became believers. Galatians 5 lists the works of the flesh. They're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And Paul says, I warn you, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Book of Revelation. Rest of mankind did not repent of their murders or their sorceries. It's something, something to be repented of in the New Testament. So this warning, it's for us, okay? Stay away from the dark arts. Okay? Stay away from all means of divination. And um, 
sadly, these things are, are not lost arts in our day. Um, there was a, an interesting study done as recently as 2009 where uh, U.S. adults were asked to identify supernatural experiences that they claim to have experienced. Okay? These are things that they have experienced. About one-third have been in touch with the dead. One out of three. About one out of five have seen or been with a ghost. About one out of six have consulted a fortune teller or a psychic. One out of six. Now, most of us are not deeply into these matters or we wouldn't be here this morning, right? Um, that doesn't mean, though, that we don't dabble. Uh, I ran across a catechism. It was very helpful. It says, all forms of divination are to be rejected. Recourse to Satan or demons conjuring up the dead or other practices falsely supposed to unveil the future. Consulting horoscopes, astrology, palm reading, interpretation of omens and lots, the phenomena of clairvoyance, recourse to mediums, all conceal a desire for power over time, history, and in the last analysis, other human beings, as well as a wish to conciliate hidden powers. They contradict the honor, respect, and loving fear that we owe to God alone. That means... We don't get our fortunes read, okay? We don't check our horoscope and believe that it will affect us, that it somehow explains what happens in our day. It means fortune cookies are a joke, okay? They don't work. You can work on the Chinese, learn the Chinese on the other side, that's good. The other side, it's a joke. We don't seek spiritual insight from Deepak Chopra. Or we don't watch the TV shows about some cabal, secret ancient wisdom of Kabbalah. We are not open to spiritual instruction from anyone who doesn't love and serve Jesus. Okay? We are not Unitarians. The Universalist Unitarian Church in Raleigh says that they draw truth from many sources, including wisdom from the world's religions, all of them, which, in, which inspires us in our ethical and spiritual life, spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions which celebrate the sacred circle of life and instruct us to live in harmony with the rhythms of nature. No, no, we don't do that. Our God forbids us to do that. Now, are you dabbling in spiritualism apart from Yahweh and his instruction in the word? Are you searching out other hopes? Sometimes people will ask, is this stuff real? Does it work? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. Yes, there's some reality to it. No, it doesn't work. The reality is, it can really open you up to demonic realities. 
when you access them, it may in some way give them access to you. See, this, this is the lion's way that God is trying to protect you from. And I hope you heed the warning that he is bringing to you today. Like Craig Childs, you must know what you must do. More importantly, you must know what you must not do. As for you, in verse 14 there, the Lord your God has not allowed you do this are you a dabbler See, the alternative to dabbling is to hope and trust fully in God who knows the future he knows the future read the book of Daniel God knows the future Daniel chapter 10 he sends one of his angels who comes to make you understand in that context what is to happen to your people in the latter days? For the vision is for days yet to come. God is foretelling the future in the book of Daniel. At the close of our time today, I'm going to give you a chance to turn from your dabblings and say, I will trust in my God alone. No more dabbling. I'm going to give you a chance to do that. Well, we've seen God's provision, his protection in the priests who teach the law. And we've seen what they're protecting them from, these false uh, ways of divining truth and spiritual, spirituality. Now he brings another protection. He's bracketing this evil with protection. Um, in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. So we have the priests and the prophet given as God's protection for his people. A prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, from your brothers. It's to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet, he shall die. So there's this promise from God for the protection of his people. He's going to bring a prophet. Prophet's going to be like Moses, and the main emphasis of that here is going to be like Moses because he's going to bring the words of God to the people. Now that has some immediate fulfillment in this succession of prophets who would follow Moses throughout the people of God's time in the Old Testament. We, we, we read the books named after them, Jonah, Hosea, Isaiah. Jeremiah, Malachi, prophets promised by God whose words are recorded in this book. 
God promised a prophet would come so that his people would not be without his word. Without, they wouldn't be without the direction and the guidance they would need. God is promising them that he's going to give them all the revelation they'll need. They don't have to go looking around somewhere else. God's going to grant it. There's that kind of immediate unfolding fulfillment, but there's also kind of an ultimate fulfillment to this because he's going to give them a prophet. One great prophet. Above all others, who's going to speak God's words to his people. And the New Testament clues us in as to who that is. It's Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. And places like the book of Acts, Peter's preaching this great sermon, right? Repent, therefore, and turn again, he says, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Looking back to what the prophets predicted. Moses said, now he's talking about what Moses said. He quotes our verse. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Peter understood that Jesus was that prophet. You see it, um, John gives us similar hints. Philip, when he meets Jesus for the first time, he goes and finds Nathaniel. It's interesting what he said to him. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. A few chapters later in John, the people seeing the miracles that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. A couple, another chapter later, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet about Jesus. Um, Moses was promising Christ when he wrote these words. Christ who would come and teach and protect them from false prophets, from wandering hearts that are prone to seek after other gods. Moses is promising us that all the revelation we ever need is found in Christ. In who he was predicted to be, in who he was, and who he was explained to us to be. Um, he is the prophet Moses promised. He is the very word of God to us, John would say. Now this morning, it's real important to ask yourself this question. Have I ever acknowledged that Jesus is that prophet whom Moses predicted, the Messiah who would come, the Savior of the world, my Savior. Have you ever acknowledged that? Have you ever bent your knee before this great prophet Jesus and said, you are my king, you are my Savior? See, the best thing on earth that I can do to protect you from the lion is to urge you to acknowledge and worship and follow Jesus, the prophet, the king, 
the Savior. There is no import, more important protection that comes to us from our good God. So what's Moses doing here? He's protecting the people. He's bracketing this thing which they must not do with priests and prophets who bring to them the word of God. That's what they have in common. They bring to the people the word of God. Down in verse 21, he, he explains something very important to his people. He says, now if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word, the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if a word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So how do you tell if a prophet is false? Well, um, it's possible that there are two criteria in here. One, is it true? Does it correspond to the rest of the teaching of the words of God? The other revelation of God, does it, does it match up? But the main emphasis here is, did it come true? <laughs> you know, was it fulfilled? If it didn't, then cross this guy off your list. He's not the one. Now, that's not always easy to do. Again, Craigie in his commentary says, when a prophet announced God's coming judgment and called for repentance, it would be clearly pointless to wait first to see if the judgment actually came to pass and then repent, okay? It's too late then. Rather, he says, the criteria represent the means by which a prophet gained his reputation as a true prophet and spokesman for the Lord. Over the course of a prophet's ministry, the character of a prophet as a true spokesman of God would begin to emerge clearly. So it's hard to do this, but it must be done. Prophets must speak truth. When they predict what is about to happen, it must come to pass. This is one of the huge problems with the Jehovah Witnesses. Okay? In the, back in the early 20th century, they were notorious date setters for the coming of Christ. He's going to come in 1914. He's going to come in 1925. They kept recalibrating and resetting dates. And of course... We still await the coming of Christ. This is one of the problems with the Mormon faith. Uh, Joseph Smith made numerous predictions about numerous things that simply did not come true. He predicted whom his successor would be. Um, his son. His son was not his successor. Brigham Young was his successor. He got that wrong. Okay. He predicted that the coming of Christ would come prior to the year 1891. It didn't happen. So um, a prophet must be someone who, whose prophecies are fulfilled, who consistently bears the character of truthfulness. And priests and prophets are given to God's people to protect them, to bring his word to them, protect them from the abominable ways of the nations around them, from the lies of the lion himself. So the teaching of the word, it's a safeguard for us. Psalm 119 says, if your law had not been my delight, Lord, I would have perished in my affliction. But the word protects us when we delight in it. So the word, how it's proclaimed and how it's received, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for teachers of the word. 
There is a somber warning in verse 20. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, but I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. It was a capital offense to say, this is from the Lord, and it wasn't from the Lord. Um, I had a professor in seminary who said something that has haunted me from the day that I heard him say it. He was my most exacting professor, the most demanding of us. And the reason was, he said, when you speak for God, you say what God says, not more, not less. And he graded accordingly. Okay. Um, and so that terrified me. Um, and it, I am paranoid about preaching as a result of that. It's the most terrifying thing I do. I stand up and speak for God. Um, and so there's whole lots of really interesting things in the Bible that I don't talk about. Because I don't have a green light from God to talk about those things. I have lots of really goofy theological ideas. I don't talk about those. When you teach, when you speak for God, be careful. Those of you who are preparing to do this and those of you who do it in our church, be careful not to share your opinions as though they were God's commands. Okay? Be careful. Be careful not to share your theological hunches as though they were God's unmitigated commands. They are not. Be careful. When you speak for God, you say what he has said, no more and no less, because the stakes are very high. When you open up the Bible and you teach it. Now, what about for those of us who come on Sundays and we sit under the, under the word, we, we hear the word. There is a lion out there and he is seeking someone to devour. And if you do not sit under the word, under the word, and receive it in glad submission, that could be you. Don't let it be you. Okay, let me close with this reflection uh, by Herschel York on Pandora Radio. He says, uh, one of the marvels of the internet age is a thing called Pandora Radio. I love Pandora Radio. When you listen to a radio station on terrestrial or satellite radio, you have to listen to every song played. You can change a channel, but you can't change a song. You're stuck with whatever you're given. But that's not so on Pandora. On Pandora, you put in different singers, bands, or songs that you like, and they use an algorithm to parse the music that you list. The algorithm asks, is this rock? Is it soft rock? Is it hard rock? Is it antiphonal? Does it have guitar leads? Does it have a front man? It analyzes what you like, and then it can incorporate other similar songs and artists into the mix. And each song that's played, Pandora puts a little thumbs up sign or a little thumbs down sign by the song. When you click the thumbs up sign, the algorithm is strengthened even more to your tastes. And it will play more music 
that you like. If you click the thumbs down sign, Pandora will skip that particular song and bring up a different one for you to judge. He says, in an age where customization of lifestyle and belief has become the norm, this is often the way we approach the Bible. I like 1 Corinthians 13 about love. I don't like 1 Corinthians 11 about women. I like the book of Joshua about God bringing the Israelites into the promised land. I don't like the parts of Joshua about killing people. I like Jesus, the baby in the manger. I don't like Jesus who calls a woman a dog. I like Jesus in the Beatitudes. I don't like him when he talks about plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand. We tailor and customize, he says, our view of Scripture and ultimately our view of God. It's like we have our own internal algorithm all the time, sorting through and processing the biblical data to say, oh, oh, I accept this part. I'll preach this part. This part is useful to modern society. Oh, but this other part I'm embarrassed, even ashamed of. Are you, on Sunday mornings, in this room, in glad submission to the teaching and preaching of the Word? All of it? What it says about marriage and divorce and remarriage? What it says about premarital sex? What it says about being generous? What it says about loving neighbors? What it says about loving enemies? When you come on Sunday, are you here to evaluate the preaching, enjoy the preaching, or submit to the preaching? Why do you think we're teaching through the book of Deuteronomy? Okay. We believe it. Okay. We believe it all. We believe that these goofy laws in the Old Testament show us our God. And call us to be a certain kind of people. And as your pastor, I beg you, come and submit to the teaching of the word. It is your protection from the lion. It is what you must do. You must know what you must do. And you must know what you must not do. What you must not do is seek truth about God and life somewhere else. Somewhere else than his word. What you must do is seek and submit to truth in God's kind, loving word as it's brought to us. So let's, let's close our service. And think about what God is saying to us. He is calling us, he is calling you to a renewed submission to his word. Where you receive it so that you can do it. He is calling you to a renewed hope in God alone. Stop dabbling. Stop poking around in other places, in other hopes. Hope in God. Trust in God. Lay those other things aside. And maybe this morning he's calling you to embrace Christ for the very first time as prophet and savior and king. Lord of all. Lord of your life. 
And so to do that, the worship team's going to come. They're going to lead us in a closing song as we always do. But I would, like, I would like to ask of you today that if God is prompting you through this text of Scripture, that as an evidence of your submission to it, you would come forward and if you're able, you'd kneel down here at the front during the song of worship. And, I, and I'm going to ask our elders and our pastors and our women's ministry leaders to be um, a little bit more engaging, a little bit more initiati initiative today and just to come alongside you as you're new here and they'll just lay their shoulder on you. They don't have time for a conversation with you. They're just going to pray God's blessing and his favor on you as you respond to his word. And I, I'm asking you to do that today for two reasons. One, um, it's good to have our leaders pray for you. It is. Even these simple prayers of blessing, it's good. The Bible says God loves to hear the prayer of a righteous man and honor it. So uh, these people are that. But secondly, it's good to take a public step of obedience. It's not the only step, but it can be an important first step because it's a step of submission. Um, so that when you leave here, your spouse or your small group or even your kids can say to you, on Father's Day, your son could say to you, Dad, what were you doing down there? And you can say, son, I was submitting to God. And I was repenting of my sin. So, during this song, if you'll come for prayer, and our leaders will move among you, be patient. They'll move among you, and they'll just lay their hand on your shoulder, and they'll pray a prayer of God's blessing and favor on your life. Um, now, if you are coming down for the, you've, you've never done this before, and you want to trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord, I do want you to tell whatever leader comes to you that that's what you're doing so they can set up a time right after the service and have a conversation with you and pray more pointedly for you. But um, let's, uh, let's begin a pattern with this action of glad submission to God's good word that's given to us to protect us from the abominable practices of the nations, right? From the lion himself. Let's stand. Let's worship God together.